Hi, this is Professor Jim Paisley. Are you tired of the five-minute news clips presented every night by the talking heads on the national news? Would you like to know what is really going on? I have taught American and European history for the past 27 years. I find it fascinating how history truly does repeat itself. When we watch the evening news, no one seems to know anything about how current events are all tied to the past. Critical race theory, crime in our cities, federal versus state powers, the Arab-Israeli conflict? How about international relations with Russia, China, and Europe? On my shows, I give a historical perspective to what is currently happening in our world. Join me weekly to find the true history behind what is happening today. the recent news about vaccinations and so on and so forth, thought it might be interesting to do a little history on vaccinations. And today we're going to talk about three pioneers in this area. The first being Edward Jenner. Now Dr. Jenner is seen as the father of the modern vaccination, the country doctor who pioneered the field of vaccination. The legend usually repeated is that Jenner, a family doctor from Gloucestershire, England, had observed that milkmaids working in the countryside around his hometown of Berkeley had remarkably clear complexions and were never afflicted by the scars of the feared disease smallpox. When he asked about this, he was told that they had all contracted cowpox in the course of their work working at the dairy farms, and was this that protected them from smallpox. Now, Jenner decided to try an experiment, and when Sarah Nelms consulted him about the blisters she had acquired after milking a cow named Blossom, the doctor acted quickly. Using fluid from Nelms' lesions, he deliberately infected James Phipps, the eight-year-old son of his gardener, first with cowpox and later with smallpox itself. Now, to everyone's relief, James did not contract smallpox. Jenner's theory had been correct, and vaccination was born. Now, Edward Jenner wanted vaccination to be free at the point of delivery, available to everyone, no matter who they were or where they were from. However, what is often forgotten is the rigorous scientific method behind Jenner's experiment. For some years prior to this first vaccination, in 1796, that's right, 1796, he had been gathering evidence supporting the theory that those who had once contracted cowpox were immune from smallpox. But his evidence was predominantly based on hearsay and required scrutiny in the form of clinical trials. This is how, on May the 14th, 1796, he came to take the fluid from a cowpox blister on Nelms's hand and scratch it onto the skin of James Phipps, who had previously had neither cowpox nor smallpox. As expected, Phipps contracted cowpox, and once his fever subsided, Jenner then attempted to inoculate him using live smallpox. This technique, also known as variolation, 
involved deliberately infecting a patient with a mild dose of smallpox in the expectation that it would provide protection from a more severe infection. It had long been practiced in China, India, the Ottoman Empire, even parts of Africa, and it gained particular popularity in Western medicine after 1721 when it was championed by Lady Mary Wortley Montague. Now, Lady Mary had arranged for her children to be variolated, vaccinated, after witnessing the practice in Turkey, and soon persuaded Carolyn, the Princess of Wales, to have her own children inoculated. Jenner once wrote, On average, I'm at least six hours daily with my pen in my hand, bending over writing paper, till I'm grown as crooked as a cow's horn and tawny as whey butter. Through modern eyes, we might be taken aback by the ethical implications of deliberately infecting a child with smallpox. However, at the time, the technique was considered to be the gold standard for artificially inducing immunity. Now, does this sound familiar, folks? Infection with the mild disease cowpox was perhaps more controversial, but Jenner's theory looked to be correct when, despite exposure to the deadly virus, Phipps did not contract smallpox. Some months later, Jenner attempted to inoculate Phipps with smallpox again. Again, the results were outstanding. And then he tried the same experiment on numerous others. Now, Jenner's trials were controlled, repeatable, and crucially widely disseminated through his 1798 publication called An Inquiry into the Causes and Effects of the Variole Vaccinae. Now, having shown that cowpox could protect against smallpox, Jenner devoted the rest of his life to telling the world about vaccination and how to perform it safely and effectively. In the garden of his house in Berkeley, Gloucester, Jenner turned a rustic thatched summer house into the world's first free vaccination clinic. There, he ensured that his life-saving medical intervention was available on the basis of need rather than ability to pay. Many considered the Temple of Vaccinia, the grand name given by Jenner to this building, to be a symbol not just of hope in the fight against disease, but of the principles and values of a later free public health service, the National Health Service. Now, John Barron, Edward Jenner's biographer, wrote that the discovery of vaccination was ushered into the world with singular modesty and humility. And so it was that Jenner, without fanfare or ceremony, made his research on vaccination against smallpox freely available to the world. Jenner did not seek to profit from his work and discouraged others from doing the same. If anything, Jenner's own income and medical practice suffered from the long hours he invested corresponding with those who were interested in adopting the idea of vaccination. At the heart of Jenner's commitment to free access for all was his practice of opening his garden once a week so that the poor of the local area could be vaccinated. Jenner's tireless work to share news of vaccination was grounded in his own deep-seated compassion and desire to bring about a world free of smallpox. The fact that Jenner rarely traveled, preferring home comforts to a life on the road performing mass vaccinations, does not contradict these values. Jenner was, first and foremost, just a country doctor. Now, in 1804, his friend... W.J. Joyce observed, The doctor very well understands the art of dealing with their prejudices, and it gave me great pleasure to observe the gentle and effectual manner with which he endeavored to soothe their mind. 
Now, Jenner knew his patients and understood that they might have concerns about this new practice. That they consented to receive vaccination illustrates their level of trust in him. Jenner primarily vaccinated within his normal practice area and taught others how to do the same in their own communities. This method of working perpetuated even to the final days of the World Health Organization Smallpox Eradication Program of 1996, which ran all the way through 1980, when an international team of medics supported local health care workers to ensure vaccination was accepted in areas where people remained unprotected. Edward Jenner wanted vaccination to be free at the point of delivery, carefully explained by trusted and trained local health care workers, and available to everyone, no matter who they were or where they were from. He considered himself the vaccine clerk of the world and was not interested in geopolitical divides, for the sciences, he said, are never at war, and he knew that it would require an international effort to realize his dream of the global eradication of smallpox. Jenner's willingness to teach anyone to vaccinate contributed to the prompt uptake of his new practice throughout the world and was rewarded with international recognition and respect. So much so that in 1807, with Britain and France locked in a conflict, Jenner petitioned Napoleon for the release of two friends who were being held as prisoners. Napoleon was told, dismiss the request, until his wife, Josephine, insisted he look at who it was from again. Napoleon, seeing that Jenner was the author of the letter, said what that man asked is not to be refused. How about another vaccine story? Now here, this article was in Time magazine in 1939 and brought forth again recently by Lily Rothman. It deals with the vaccine developed to address the disease of rabies. Now, rabies is among the most terrifying viruses to get. According to the Centers for Disease Control, once clinical signs of rabies appear, the disease is nearly always fatal. Luckily for us and our pets, Louis Pasteur developed a vaccine that can stop things from getting to that point. The first time the vaccine was ever administered to a human being, back in 1985, was by Louis Pasteur himself. Now, knowing that the disease was otherwise fatal, both the doctor and his patient were willing to risk whatever harm might come from the injection, which had only been tested on dogs. Now, here's a story behind this. Louis Pasteur was raised in rural France, and as a child, his village was terrorized by wild dogs and wolves. So much so that when these packs of wolves and dogs came into town, they would ring bells and everybody would run behind closed doors. If you were unfortunate enough to be caught outside and bit, you would contract rabies. And as a child, he had seen the devastation caused by the rabies. So it became his lifelong goal, even as he worked on things like the pasteurization process, to come to his office late at night and work on a cure for rabies. Now, one hot July morning in 1885, a young boy by the name of Joseph Meister was dragged by his frantic mother through the streets of Paris in search of an unknown scientist who, according to rumors, could prevent rabies. Now, the nine-year-old Joseph had been bitten in 14 places by a huge mad dog, 
and in a desperate attempt to cheat death, his mother had fled from their hometown in Alsace-Lorraine to Paris. And early in the afternoon, Mrs. Meister met a young physician in a hospital and asked, where could I find this scientist? And the doctor said, you mean Pasteur. I'll take you there. Now, bacteriologist Louis Pasteur, who kept kennels of mad dogs in a crowded little laboratory and was hounded by medical criticism, had never tried his rabies vaccine on a human before. But moved by the tears of Mrs. Meister, he finally took the boy to the local Hotel Dieu, had him injected with material from the spinal cord of a rabbit that had died from rabies. For three weeks, Pasteur watched anxiously at the boy's bedside. To his overwhelming joy, the boy recovered. Now, by that fall, when his nation's Academy of Science acknowledged the success, hundreds of persons who had been bitten by mad dogs rushed to his laboratory. As for the little boy, Joseph Meister, kind of a neat story. He ended up working as a janitor at the Pasteur Institute. And there, Time reported in 1939 that Meister entertained visitors with tales of his time as the pioneering doctor's patient. And he stated, I shall see always Pasteur's good face focused on me. How about one more, folks? This one is from Christopher Klein at History.com. Let's talk about Jonas Salk and the polio vaccine. Now, in the early 20th century, polio was one of the most feared diseases in America. While most scientists believed that effective vaccines could only be developed with live viruses, Jonas Salk developed a killed virus, vaccine by growing samples of the virus and then deactivating them by adding formaldehyde so that they could no longer produce. By injecting the benign strains into the bloodstream, the vaccine tricked the immune system into manufacturing protective antibodies without the need to introduce a weakened form of the virus into a healthy patient. Now, many researchers, such as Polish-born virologist Albert Sabin, who was developing an oral live virus polio vaccine, called Salk's approach dangerous. He even belittled Salk and said he was a mere kitchen chemist. Now, after successfully inoculating thousands of monkeys, Salk began the risky step of testing the vaccine on humans in 1952. In addition to administering the vaccine to children at two Pittsburgh-area institutions, Salk injected himself, his wife, and his three sons in his kitchen after boiling the needles and syringes on his own stovetop. Salk announced the success of the initial human tests to a national radio audience on March 26, 1953. Now, folks, do you see a central theme here? Smallpox, rabies, polio, all deadly diseases with no cure at the time. Jenner, Pasteur, and Salk all saw that something needed to be done. In every case, they took tremendous risks. Had their patients died as a result of their experiments, they would have been charged with murder. Think about that. Now, Jenner injected his gardener's eight-year-old son with an experimental vaccine. Likewise, Louis Pasteur risked his entire reputation and career to save the life of a nine-year-old boy infected with rabies. And finally, what greater risk can one take than to try your experiment on yourself and your own family, as Jonas Salk did with his polio vaccine? Now, folks, I'm not telling you to run out and get the vaccine if you haven't already done so. 
What I'm trying to do is what I do every week with my shows. I'm trying to educate. I'm tired of the national news pushing fear and lies. I want people to know as much information as possible when it comes to making a decision as important as one's health. Vaccinate? Don't vaccinate. That's entirely up to you. Is there a risk? You bet. As you can see from today's show, there is always a risk. All I ask is that you do your research before you make any decisions. As I've always said, I don't have a problem with people that don't know, but I have a huge problem with people who say they don't want to know. Today, as we face a new disease in the form of COVID-19, more than 140 leaders around the world have called for a people's patent-free vaccine. Discussions focus on things like an equitable access, treatment focused on need rather than the ability to pay, and a method of distribution that's both rapid and fair. And if all that sounds familiar, it should. These ideas are not new. These are Edward Jenner's founding principles of vaccination all the way back in 1798, folks. Here's something I want you to think about. We have a tendency to look at history as a snapshot in time. We all know the dates of 1776, 1492, but did you ever stop to think that the people who lived during those times had a history? Sure enough, they did. If I asked all of you, do you know something about the Civil War? How about World War I? World War II? I'd be willing to bet none of you were there, yet you know something about it. Well, the same thing counted for all these people we're studying. They had a history, and they learned that history from their parents and grandparents. And those histories had an impact on the way they responded to things that happened in their lives. Think about that for a minute. All of the people you study in history had a history. Our forefathers, who came here from England, they had to deal with the tyrant prior to that. At least that's what their grandparents told them. Their grandparents, in dealing with Charles I, were living under a tyrant. And what did they do? They cut his head off. That's right. Revolution. So when our forefathers found themselves under a new tyrant, under George, during our revolution... They looked upon the past of their grandparents and their parents who had lived through the same types of trials and tribulations. And that formed their opinion of what was the best course of action to take. So next time you're studying history, take the time to study the people during that period of time and look where they came from and what their backgrounds were and what their parents and grandparents lived through. I think you'll be surprised. In the 1830s, 1850s, and 1870s, we saw a huge influx of immigrants coming here from Europe. And they came here not so much for the opportunities here as for what they were fleeing. Revolutions broke out after the Napoleonic Wars in Europe in the 1830s, 1850s, and 1870s. 
I'd be willing to bet you if you go back and look at your family tree, most of your ancestors came during those decades, the 30s, 50s, and 70s. Whether they were fleeing religious persecution, a tyrant who was in charge of their country, economic situations, there was always a reason why they left and sought better opportunities. So think about the history, folks. Every time we have one of these sessions, think about the history. This is the reason I get so upset. When I see people tearing down statues, when I see revisionist history being taught in our classrooms, history is there for us to learn, good and bad. If we don't study our history, how can we possibly formulate an opinion as to how to best go forward? Bottom line is, we've done this from the beginning of time. People learn as they go. Again, good and bad. If you tried something and it didn't work, and it blew up in your face, well, you learned something. If you tried something and it worked, again, you learned. To eliminate our history is to eliminate our culture. And I, for one, am not going to stand idly by and watch us lose that great resource. This is the reason I get so upset. So folks, continue to listen to the shows. I think, if nothing else, you'll be learning and adding to your own knowledge of where we came from. That's the most important thing. If you don't know your past, you're condemned to repeat it just as George Santayana stated. Now I'm going to ask one final favor of all you out there. Take the time to share these podcasts with people just like you who are interested in our past. And by all means, please share this information with your children. After all, folks, it's up to you to educate your children. Not the schools, not the government. It's up to you. Just as I said earlier in one of my earlier podcasts, parents are the key to teaching their children how to live. That's right, how to live. You, my friends, are the true educators. And just like the grandparents and parents of our forefathers educated them, I'm counting on you to educate the next great generation of Americans. Well, folks, that's all the time we have for this segment. Thanks for listening to True History with Professor Jim Paisley. See you next time.